0: Hello, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, The Heart Guy, and I welcome you to another exciting and informative podcast titled The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter, bringing you interesting discussions and conversations related to the vast and important subject of heart disease, heart failure, and organ donation, and everything related to that in our ever-changing world. I'm extremely honored to have as my special guest today an inspiring leader in the medical and global communities, Jen Benson. Jen graduated high school from the Frankfurt International School in Germany and went on to Wheaton College in Norton, Massachusetts, earning her bachelor's degree in philosophy. Her interests were both in medicine and fashion. While she explored both of these fields, it took a dual transplant of her pancreas and kidney and the selflessness of her donor family for Jen to find her real purpose in life, that of organ donation. So today, Jen resides in Connecticut and is the founder of The Transplant Journey Incorporated, Jen is the epitome of survival and thrival and is with me today to share her story. Jen, welcome to the Heart of the Matter.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Gary. I really appreciate it.
0: Oh yeah, I know us too. This is going to be uh, extraordinary, I know, right away. So uh, I have to ask you, you grew up in Germany. Uh, Was that where your parents were from or is your dad in the military? How did that come about?
1: Actually, believe it or not, no. Uh, My mom is German and my dad is American. I went to high school over there and... uh, Spent most of my life in Connecticut and was fortunately enough to uh, go to school over there for about five years.
0: So you can speak German and all that, I guess.
1: Uh, I would like to take that credit. Unfortunately not. Used, used to be a little more fluent in, in German, but have, have lost some of that. So order, order some good food. Yeah, that's oh, yeah, that's most about of, it.
0: Most, yeah, most important. Okay. Yeah. yeah, you're just like me. Very good. Um, so in 1990, at 11 years old, you were told that you had diabetes, which was probably tough for a little girl to handle.
1: Uh, I was actually diagnosed in 1990 with Modi diabetes, which um, back then was considered quite rare. Modi diabetes stands for mature onset of diabetes in youth. And um, I was completely asymptomatic and it was caught through a physical. I went for a camp physical And it was diagnosed through a urine test. They found sugar in my urine and it was filed away. It wasn't until I went back several months later that the physician was flipping through my file and they discovered it. The doctor asked if we could do a glucose test and it was spotted that my glucose was extremely high. They recommended that I go on tablets to control my sugars, but I had no symptoms I didn't have the typical signs of diabetes that, that most people have, the extreme thirst, the constant urination, weight loss, none of that. When I was told this, I was in total denial at the time for being an 11 year old. Didn't, didn't want to follow any of the uh, instructions that the doctors gave me, didn't want to the, follow the diet, nothing, didn't want to take my medications. Just like I said, total denial for an 11 year old, which I think is pretty common. I think it's common nowadays for, for most people, even when you're told you have a, a horrible disease, especially yes. for young kids.
0: Yeah, and change is hard. I think it's even harder for adults, certainly whenever they're asked to change their diet, especially or their way of life, but not to smoke or not to drink.
1: Um, yeah, so, I, I think I think with a lot of people, when, when you're told you can't have something, that that's when you want it even more so. We,
0: right. we crave it. So your parents must have tried to keep you on these diets and recommendations but you you kind of revolted as you suggested.
1: I was life. yeah, I was the complete rebel. Yep. Okay. Yep.
0: Oh, yeah. So like so many young women this led you down a path where you decided you were not going to eat a lot at all, you're not going to eat healthfully as you termed it, you're a rebellious teenager. Can you share with us what that was like from your perspective and what your habits were at that point that caused things to to slide down a little bit?
1: Back then, it was heroin chic was really popular in the 90s, and I unfortunately fell into the trap of a horrible eating disorder all through my teen years. My my parents really did their best to try and instill positive self-esteem in me, and I had a real bad problem with body dysmorphia and really focused on, on my stomach. And always, unfortunately, viewed myself as being really having problems with with my stomach area, which was where I was supposed to be at that point, taking insulin, I, I switched over at age 14, from taking pills to needing to take insulin. And I developed binging and, and purging issues around age 14. And it wasn't the typical binging and purging that most people think of with bulimia, I, I would gorge myself on all sorts of food and just drink tons and tons of of waters and diet sodas. And because of the diabetes, I wasn't taking my insulin the way I was supposed to. So I would literally go around and eat all this food, drink a lot, and then just constantly run to the bathroom and, and urinate and flush out all the calories possible. And that was how I remained extremely, extremely thin. But in my mind... I was always constantly overweight. To everyone else around me, I was extremely thin. And my parents were sending me to psychologists, psychiatrists galore, but I wasn't ready to accept the fact that I did have a raging eating disorder for years and years and years and years and years. years. So the binging and purging back then didn't have a name. It wasn't until my mid-20s when I finally found an eating disorder therapist that really helped me and come to terms with it, and I was ready to accept it, that the term had been coined at that point, diabulimia.
0: Now, so diabulimia, does that suggest that the diabetes causes you physically to want to take in these liquids? Like, is does it confuse your body so that at that point, There's really a confused message as to whether you're actually consciously making the decision not to, you know, drink the right things and also your body's wanting certain.
1: It's it's binging and purging through the diabetes. That that's how you control the binging and purging is is with the use of your of your diabetes.
0: It's complicated. So, it's it's
1: very, yeah, it's very complicated. A lot of young diabetics and older diabetics do go through this. It's, it's become more and more common that I've learned as my life continued as, as a young diabetic. I, I realized I wasn't as alone as I felt, which was very hard to cope with.
0: Yeah, and, and as most of us have learned, it has to do with finding the right doctors to figure out exactly what it is that is the problem in the first place and then how to address it. Yeah. I think we're finding that in the healthcare system in general, that that's, you know, unfortunately, most people don't have the wherewithal to be able to look for the right people to take care of what their problem might be. By the time you find out what it is, you've already been through several. Yeah.
1: And and I think with chronic illness, um, one of the problems is we all feel very alone when we're going through it. It's not until we come to the end, or we come to a breaking point with chronic illness, we really do learn and discover that there are others out there who are in the same shoes that we're in.
0: Yeah, you have to get to a point where you're, you're actually seeking specifically, you kind of hone in on what it is that you need to do. Yeah, and and, it, and it, t- it takes us to, to heal ourselves really at that point. Um, other people are well meaning and they're trying to help us, but they really can't until we come to the conclusion that we have to find out the answer it's, it's- yeah
1: when we when we're willing to admit it to ourselves and say it aloud I, I think that's that's the toughest point too
0: so if that wasn't enough for a young person to handle you found yourself with kidney failure and so how did that come about <laughs> yeah it
1: was it was interesting for me because most people when they hear diabetes they think uh, diabetes and kidney failure really go hand in hand which which is absolutely true but for myself that was not the case it was a kidney stone. That led to my kidney failure. And um, that happened for me, uh, gosh, in 2009. It was a kidney stone that led to sepsis. And the sepsis caused septic shock and caused the shutdown of all my organs. Unfortunately, my kidneys were never able to recover from that. And that led to me going on to dialysis for seven years. And I was lucky enough to end up after seven years of being on dialysis to receive a kidney and pancreas transplant. And it was then that I was finally able to get the treatment that I needed to end up, you know, fortunately, because of my, my, my selfless donor and his, his amazing family, that I no longer now require insulin and
0: I'm no longer on dialysis. So if I can roll back just a second, I want to talk about dialysis a little bit because you said you were going from New York to Minnesota to have that treatment done. So for most of the time that you were on dialysis, were you here in in the Northeast or were you in Minnesota? Where were you from?
1: Uh, we, we ended up living in Connecticut, obviously, for the majority of the time, but we did. I, I started the process of multi-listing around the country just to try and increase my odds for, for getting a transplant. Mm-hmm. Um, we did live out in Minnesota for a period of time because of being listed out in Minnesota Fairview for a while. And uh, that was quite a challenge because in the beginning, we, we did not live out there. We were just originally listed out there, but because several offers came our way, we were flying back and forth, but because those offers never actually panned out, and it became so expensive to fly back and forth when those offers never panned out, and the emotional roller coaster ride and toll that it took on myself and my family, and just telling friends as well oh, we got an offer, we're flying out to Minnesota. And there were several occasions where I was scrubbed up, ready to go. Yeah. The bonnet was on my head, the booties—I mean, yeah. everything. We were ready. I was—I was truly waiting in the bed in on the ho- in the hospital, and you know, the surgeon came in and said, "Jen, I'm sorry, it's not a go. You can go home." And in that same day, you know, I, I had to put my clothes back on. We were taking the plane back the very next morning because it didn't happen. It became too taxing.
0: And I, and I will tell you, number number one, I've had two aborted heart transplants already in my hospital already so I know what that they call them dry runs what you went through there and now I'm multi-listed at least in two places in Milwaukee and New York and uh, I'm actually going to be listed at a third hospital but it'll be in New York as well make it a little easier as far as the travel goes but I can see myself going to Milwaukee with those wonderful doctors uh, have that operation be called off for one reason or another I realize the reality there, and you're right, takes a toll not so much on the patient as much as it does on the caregivers. So when you were going through a dialysis, what effect did that have on your husband and your and your parents uh, during that seven-year period?
1: It was at, at that point, you know, my ex-husband was working for a very well-known firm and, and someone came to him and said, listen, Blockbuster doesn't close when someone gets sick. I mean, he had some amazing supportive partners that worked with him and, and some other people that just didn't understand what we were going through. They couldn't relate. Yeah. And, and, you know, I don't blame them because mm. they, they weren't walking the walk that we were going through. So it's, it's, it's very hard until you experience what it's like to be that sick. People can't cope. They can't understand. They can't relate. Until a family member has gone through something that's that horrific. But his dear friend, his partner, was absolutely phenomenal. They couldn't ask for a better partner. But you know, my parents, the the stress that it put on their shoulders, they the support they gave, it was unparalleled. They they were by my side through everything. I mean, my ears, their their tears, it was it was the same set of tears. They were absolutely phenomenal through the whole thing.
0: Yeah, there's there's no playbook for caregivers, certainly, at this point. So we have to yeah. do better in that department, yeah. you know, as a, as a healthcare community. And I, I've had some projects that I've started, which I'll eventually get to in terms of creating uh, caregiver support systems. I know, I know that you have an effort in that regard, trying to help the caregivers. And, and to that, I we thank you. But yeah, it takes its toll. And it is, it is so complicated that people who are not involved in it really don't even want to hear about it, because you know, it's like fear that people have. Um, I know when I was uh, speaking before COVID, I was, mostly doing in-person uh, presentations on congestive heart failure. And to get an audience for a disease that affects 6.3 million people in the country, and that one in four are gonna get in their life, it was hard to get even an audience for that because people aren't ready to listen to what that's all about, what it means. And it's so common, forget all these other issues, you know, all these other organ issues that we are in touch with now. So taking the effort of people like you and me, and we're trying to just uh, educate people on the fact that these things are something that have have to be addressed. So talk a little bit about the notion that I know is very common, this myth that doctors don't wanna save your organs or your life, I should say, because they think they could donate your organs to somebody who might need them in the hospital. Mm,
1: It's a very common misconception. Unfortunately, I think that that goes around and it's something that I try to bust the misconception as often as I possibly can. I do hear it a lot, unfortunately, with the transplant journey and the work that, that we do with my mentors. So every opportunity that I do get, I try to dissuade people from, from falling into that trap. We
0: understand that doctors do not operate in a sense that they're gonna, you know, not care that, that you live.
1: I think our job as as recipients and, and people who work in advocacy for organ donation explain that doctors will fight even harder to save those people who are sick because they want to preserve lives. That's the Hippocratic oath that they take when when they go to med school. So that is absolutely wrong to have that thought
0: in your head. So let me shift back to what you started talking about. On August seventeenth, two 2015, life changed forever when you meet your surgeon, Casey McCune, and a fellow named Ned. So what, what happened then with Ned and Casey McCune? What happened there?
1: Well, Casey McCune was um, my transplant surgeon. She was absolutely amazing. She she is the woman that that saved my life and, and came through for me. My, my selfless donor, she's the one that kind of made the call to accept the organs that were flown in from Vanderbilt down in Tennessee. I will obviously be indebted to her for her amazing surgery that she did for me. My surgery was 11 hours long. I have to say I have never felt as healthy as I feel today sitting here since I was 11 years old. I I can't remember feeling this great. Like I said, I I spent... Seven years on dialysis. I was bedridden for, for the seven years. I was extremely, extremely sick on oxygen, in a wheelchair, not able to walk. Unfortunately, because I think the diabetes, I just had some some other issues that came into play while I was waiting for my transplant. And there were a lot of problems with getting my medications right, getting my dry fluid right, and uh or, sorry, my dry weight right some other you know medical issues that came into play so i unfortunately really had a lot of factors that that came into play while i was waiting for my transplant so i i definitely was a challenge to the medical community while i was waiting it was it was really tough so after receiving my transplant i went back to my dialysis center because i was so grateful for receiving my my gift of life and my second chance I, and i wanted to thank all the nurses and techs and really volunteer to speak with any patients that may have questions regarding medications, offer any help that I could be to to speak with anyone, motivate them, tell them that not to give up hope, not to give up. And the head of the facility said, Jen, if you'd like to speak to someone, there's a person by the name of Ned, who recently started an organization. And I think You know, it it might be advantageous for you to meet him. He's speaking at a local library. You should probably connect with him. So I went to a local library and heard him speak that night. And at the end of his speaking engagement, I went up and introduced myself. And that man was Ned. And introduced ourselves, spoke a little bit. I told him what I had been through. He had recently donated the kidney and we exchanged numbers. And I believe it was maybe a week or two later, we met and had lunch and really connected and kind of formed a friendship. I started volunteering for his organization. At that time, his organization, which was then known as Donor to Donor, which has just recently in the past eight months, I would say, changed over to NKDO. I started as a volunteer for him and am still a volunteer with his organization to this day, advocating for living donors. So
0: now it's incredible that you decided. I think about having had this long journey, so difficult. And the first thing you're doing is trying to find a way to advocate for other patients, you know, instead of turning into the illness and saying, okay, I'm done with that. I'm just going to you know, at this point, just have a grand old time, you're spending your life trying to advocate for others. I thank you for that. It's humbling. So tell me about Transplant Journey Incorporated.
1: Uh, The Transplant Journey, I really started that organization based off of what I had been through myself. I was so grateful for this gift that I had been given. And I said to myself, right after my transplant, I said, I want to give back in some sort of fashion, because I had gotten so much amazing support from, from my family. And I really felt as though when I went through dialysis, the medical community had expected me to know everything that was out there. And I think there are so many people who are put in that situation and I didn't know where to turn. And had it not been for this amazing support from my family, I would have been completely lost. And there are lots of people that fall into my shoes. And unfortunately, they don't have an amazing support system like that. And they don't know what credible resources to trust and where to find the resources and where to turn. So I wanted to create an organization that would help guide these people and support these people and advocate for these people and educate these people. And I wanted to do this free of charge for these people because I didn't think an organization like that really existed, or I didn't know where to find an organization like this. So that was how the transplant journey really was born. So I went about creating this after my transplant and after working with Ned, because I had more so the recipient experience and Ned obviously had the living donor experience.
0: Yeah. And you're right. There's this disconnect. It's in many of the, it's it's in heart failure too, at this point, this void where it's up to the patient to figure out how to solve the problem and especially with kidneys. I know Joe Bueno, he has Transplant Warriors 10, 24-7 trying to do the same thing single-handedly. He's got about 35 people following him and he goes to their house and tells them how to eat and shows them how to exercise. And, and the fact that the healthcare system does not have a vehicle for that is something that certainly needs to be worked upon. You're doing a similar thing, obviously. It's smaller, a sort of grassroots efforts like yours that are doing this and hopefully it'll be going on by the bigger hospitals and the bigger corporations. So there's a lot of work to be done. How can somebody get involved in organ donation through your group?
1: You can find us at www transplantjourney.org. We have a group of mentors that really cover all organ disciplines. We're not just kidney focused. All of our mentors have had transplants themselves. Now we do not offer medical advice, obviously, because we are not doctors, we are not trying to take that away from the medical community. And we do not give financial support. But we do advocate, we do educate, and we do empower patients to kind of fight for what they need and advocate for for themselves. And we do not just cover pre transplant, we also cover the transplant process and post transplant.
0: Thank you for that. And by the way, you know, so the reason I'm starting fortunately to get on my podcast, we get some very generous physicians that talk about what these issues are all about and how they're treated. But at the same time, they're operating under a certain set of rules, HIPAA being one of them where they can't really tell you what to do unless you're a patient. And so they can't come on a program like mine and start giving you advice. Because unless you're technically their patient, they're not really advised to do that or able to do that. But at the same time, you know, they can tell you what's going on in the the medical field. So to that, you know, I'm thankful for when they come on the show. And I think that they, they feel safe on this podcast, certainly in doing that. And so I think it's, it's good that we're learning. And I'm learning just along with everybody else. So Jen, this has been my great honor to have you as a guest. Um, We have so much more to talk about, and we'll do this again soon. On behalf of myself and my listeners, I thank you so much for sharing this very personal story of Thrival and uh, all that you've done for for our community, both locally and your global community, for your incredible dedication with Transplant Journeys Incorporated and for sharing this time with us. So we'll do it again soon. I hope.
1: Thank you so much, Gary. I really appreciate you giving me the time to speak on this really important topic. Okay. And I, I, I wish you so well with your heart transplant.
0: Oh yeah, no, I've I've always been lucky. It's going to go well. I don't know how it's going to end up, but I guess that you know part of living is to find out what the uh, what the next chapter in the story will be. So um, when I finish my book, it'll be the next chapter. That's all. It's going to be a big book. So thank you again Thanks. for being on. And that is our podcast for today. Please join me next time for another intriguing informative entertaining conversation please visit our website at wwwdrheart 2 that's d-r-h-e-a-r-t the numeral two h-e-a-r-t.net for upcoming podcasts or if you'd like me to host an online presentation for your group or organization if you'd like to be a guest on the heart guy presents the heart of the matter podcast just email me at theheartguyspeaks at gmail.com Our podcast can be found on Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify. Just look for The Heart Guy Presents the Heart of the Matter, and you'll find it. And until next time, this is Dr. Gary Sherman, The Heart (laughs) Guy, wishing you peace and hope.